This podcast is brought to you by the Islamic Center at NYU. For more information, visit our website at www.icnyu.org. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad, Sayyidul Awalin wa al-Akhirin wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Rabbish rahli sadri wa sirli amri wa ahlul uqlatam lisani yafqahu qawri. Assalamu alaikum. Warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. I pray uh, that everybody is well. Alhamdulillah. Ask Allah subhanahu ta'ala to protect all of us and to facilitate uh, any of the challenges that we may be facing. And I want to thank you for joining live, alhamdulillah, here at the ICNYU. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to spend with us. It is certainly appreciated tonight. Um, the topic, I was asked to choose a series of different topics instead of um, to continue the, the normal classes that we have. But then next week, from what I've been told, uh, we will return to kind of our normal schedule, uh, go back to the book of Abu Hamad al-Ghazali, rahimahullah. And then over time, I look forward to finishing the other series that we sort of started, uh, alhamdulillah. Um, we talked a few weeks ago about the qira'at of Qur'an, the preservation of the Qur'an, and I went through some of the, the different examples of those qira'at and how we know with certainty that those qira'at reached us through channels that go back to the Prophet Sallallahu in the early generations. And we have another series of talks uh, or a part of this series on going through those different asanid, those different chains of narration of the 10 major uh, qira'at. Tonight, uh, this is the first part in a series that's going to talk about the history of the Mus'haf, uh, the history of the compilation of the Qur'an. And tonight we will finish up until the time of Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan, radiallahu anhu. We, from the Muslim historical perspective, through the most authentic historical perspective, believe that there were three compilations of the Qur'an the first was during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, as we'll talk about today. The second was in the time of the Khilafat of Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu. And then the third, as we know, was in the time of Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu. Tonight, inshallah, we're going to talk about Arabic writing and its history a little bit. And then we're going to talk about the development of that writing. And then we're going to talk about the compilation of the Quran during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and in the time of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu up until the time of Uthman. And then we'll stop and then the next um, series will begin with the, 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 the Mus'haf, sorry, after, excuse me, the time of Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu. I'm, I'm having to go from the dome, uh, so you know, people often ask for references or notes, and there's nothing wrong with that. My, my training, though, and how I was trained was that a book is like crutches. And if you need a book, then that means that there is some shortcoming in what you know. Um, and that doesn't mean that people who need to, that doesn't mean as a pejorative to attack others, but just it's how I was trained. 
So if you are used to having someone provide you a text or notes or PowerPoint, my apologies, that's, that's not uh, how I was trained. Uh, secondly, I think it's important to realize that like me or any other uh, person outside of maybe a few, if you look at like how many, say, followers we have on social media, on, on Facebook, almost a million, on Instagram, 120,000, on Twitter, I don't know how many, I don't, I don't keep up. I have one person that works with me. If we compare that to Christian teachers, or Jewish teachers, or even, even Satanists, they have people help them. And what I want to share with you is that it is very hard to serve sometimes the Muslim community because they want what they're not willing to help get. And so, you know, we all have lives, we all have responsibilities, but it's very important to realize that we have to begin in like we have to help one another. So imagine that much work, full-time job, mashallah, running a school with almost 2,000 students. Of course, first and foremost is my wife and my children. And I have one person that helps me. So I can't stress that when you feel the urge to complain, which is fine, maybe volunteer first and try to be someone who helps Imam Khalid, helps uh, Sheikh Fayaz, helps um, other teachers that you see uh, in the community and, and understand that people work really, really hard. Um, this kind of work demands a level of focus and training and review that is extremely taxing also on the person. So, so forgive me for having to go from the dome, but I think it's important to understand that if we compare Muslim teachers to other religions and other, they have the patronage, they have the support and they have the volunteers and the group of people around them that allows them to scale. So the Muslim community wants to scale, especially we're talking in North America, then there has to be this ta'awun, alhamdulillah. So we talk about the history of the Mus'haf, we have to begin with the statement of the Prophet وسلم, which is an authentic statement, which is misunderstood by some people now, uh, that the Prophet وسلم, said, Nahnu ummah, ummiyah. We are an illiterate community. لا نكتبو ولا نحسبو. Another narration, لا نقرأو ولا نحسبو. Right, we don't read and we don't write. Some people, use this hadith to justify illiteracy or being ignorant of technology now. But we have to understand that this hadith is even though it comes in a general way, we are a community. He's specifically talking about the people who lived around him. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Not his ummah. Uh, until the end of time. But at that moment, the people around him, and this is strengthened by the verse in the Quran, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, right? It is Allah who has dispatched the Prophet Muhammad to the illiterate ones. So illiteracy is not something that is commendable. It's not something which is recommended, of course, 
as we'll talk about later on. So no one should take that narration that we are an illiterate community and try to apply it to Ahkam now. Uh, that will be incorrect. So therefore, we know that the majority of the people around the Prophet ﷺ, they did not have the ability, they did not have functional literacy, including Sayyidina Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Al-Ummi, Allah says, the illiterate Prophet in Surah Al-A'raf. So then that brings us to this question of when did Arabic writing and reading enter into specifically Mecca and the Arabian Peninsula, but specifically now the area of Hijaz. We know uh, based on our historical sources like Imam Madani, Imam Al-Kalbi and others, even Imam Ibn Khaldun uh, and other uh, historians, many, that there were a few people in Mecca during the time of the Prophet and slightly before his time who could read and write. I'll mention some of them as best as I can remember. Uh, the first was Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. The second was Umar ibn Khattab. The third was uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib. The fourth was uh, Uthman ibn Affan. The fifth, the sixth, and the seventh were from the same family. Harb ibn Umayyah, his son Abu Sufyan, and his son, uh, Muawiyah. Also, Talha ibn Ubaid. And finally, I think the 10th, Aban ibn Sa'ad. These people, they were known to be people who could write and read. The question, the question that, uh, and these weren't all Sahaba. The question that uh, comes up is, where did it start? Where did reading and writing start? In Mecca. This is very important in its relationship to the compilation and preservation of the Quran. Uh, Muslim historians agree on the Meccan who introduced reading and writing to Mecca. They differ on who taught him. So they differ on the person from Mecca who taught reading and writing to people in Mecca who introduced it, if you will, but they differ over who his teachers were. And that person is Harb ibn Umayyah, the father of Abu Sufyan, the grandfather of Muawiyah. Harb uh, ibn Umayyah was a businessman and he would travel to Iraq regularly and most Arab historians, scholars of language like Ibn Qutayba who lived in the third century and others they agree that the Arabic script initially came from Ambar. And we know in the last 20 years, the, the wars that were fought in Iraq and the damage and destruction that happened there we, know, we all know the Ambar Providence. Ambar is close to like the central area of Iraq at that time. What would later become Kufa. And you need to remember that the part of Ambar or close to Ambar is going to become a city called Kufa. The city of Kufa, and you need to remember this, uh, was established 17 years before the migration of the Prophet But the point here 
is that in Ambar, with Hamza Nan Ain, the Khat of Arabi began. There's a difference of opinion on the people who undertook this important uh, exercise, but Marwan ibn Murrah, Murrah, excuse me, is known sort of as the father of this. Al Mundur ibn Judra also is known as Aslam ibn Sidra. I just remember now the three names. Marwan ibn Murrah, like Murrah, sour. Uh, Aslam ibn uh, Sidra and uh, Al Mundur ibn Judra, these three people. And the, the theory is that they took the Syrianic language, what they knew of the Syrianic language, and began to develop like an alphabet for the Arabic language. And that's important because historians note that uh, Harb ibn Umayyah, according to two narrations, he took this knowledge from either Abdullah ibn Juda'an or Bishr ibn Abdul Malik. And let me correct myself. No, no. So two people, and this is uh, the narration of Imam Adani from uh, Zayd ibn An'am, that Zayd ibn An'am, he asked Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah about Arabic before the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Like, what was it like? How did they write it? What were the letters? Were there like, uh, you know, divisions between the, the words? And uh, Ibn Abbas, he said, yes. And then he asked him, and this is related by Imam Adani in, in his book, at Taysir, I believe. And Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhumah, he, he was then asked by uh, Ibn An'am, where did they learn it? And he said, from Harb ibn Umayyah. Then he asked him, where did Harb learn it? And he said, from Abdullah ibn Juda'an. Abdullah ibn Juda'an, you all know, maybe, is the person who the Hilf of Fudul happened in his house. That the treaty that the Prophet witnessed as a young person to protect the rights of people who came into Mecca to do business, that was in his home. Just to give you some historical context. From that, that notion, uh, that, that Harb, he learned from Abdullah ibn Juda'an, who learned when he would go to Ambar, back and forth. And he would learn from the people there because he spent so much time there and he wanted to conduct business. So he learned how to read and write. In fact, he lived there, we can say. Right? The other opinion is mentioned by Imam al-Kalbi, like Kelb, Imam Kalbi who mentions that Harb ibn Umayyah learned from Bishr ibn Abdul Malik. And Bishr ibn Abdul Malik was from Ambar, who are Ambari Aslan. And they spent a lot of time together. So much time, in fact, that eventually Bishr ibn Abdul Malik, he settled in Mecca and he married the sister of Harb. And later on, he moved to Ta'if. I don't want to give too much detail, but just to give you an idea. There is also a third opinion that he learned from both of them. 
which is probable, yeah? He could have learned some from this person and some from that person and a little bit from this person and a little bit from that person. And that the presence of Bishr ibn Abdul Malik in Mecca, as well as Harb ibn Umayyah, was a means for some people, as we mentioned, I think 10 people or more, to learn uh, how to read and write. In Medina, uh, the people who were known to read and write, of course, were a large number of people from the Jewish community who were teaching their children and wanted to preserve uh, their religious uh, teachings. And then people like Zayd ibn Thabit later on, and of course, Ubay ibn Ka'b, radiyallahu anhuman, of course, both of them, alhamdulillah, eventually will, will, will be Muslim. It continues this way, you know, reading is an anomaly in the Arabian Peninsula, and it's going to stay that way for a long time, even after the time of the four khulafa. Like, let's not, let's not suddenly assume that everybody began to read and write. This process takes time until the, the Battle of Badr. And, and here we see the, the genius of the Prophet ﷺ in the Battle of Badr, who we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave وَلَقَدْ نَصْرَكُمُ اللَّهُ وَأَنْتُمْ Allah says that Allah has blessed you with victory even though you were weak. That victory was a surprise victory. And in the course of that victory, uh, they, the Muslims were able to capture a number of prisoners of war. And all of us, we learned the story. And the Prophet ﷺ, around 70 people, give or take, right? 70 sometimes also is used to show like its form of hyperbole, like to show a lot of people were captured. And we know that some of them were unable to pay for their uh, freedom. So the Prophet ﷺ, he said, those amongst you who can read and write, even a little, should teach what they know to 10 children. And this will be their freedom. This is actually a very important moment in the history of the Quran, but especially the history of just, we learn something here. Now, if we look at many nonprofits in the Muslim community in America, is there a, a, a sustainability strategy of passing on leadership to young people, right? Learning how to step back and make space and also on young people to acquire the skills needed to lead. There is a duality here. So the Prophet ﷺ is providing them the skills for something extremely important because you need to know this. From the time of Badr, up until the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, by the time the Prophet ﷺ passed away, there were 40 scribes just for the Prophet ﷺ. Again, it goes back to what I talked about earlier. Many of our teachers and people who are volunteering and serving the community, they don't have a support apparatus. Even the Prophet ﷺ, he has 40 people. We're gonna mention some of them later just to write the Qur'an and just to write what he says. And what we know of some of those writings is that they were written in this khat ambari, the writing style that was learned from al-anbar that I talked about earlier. Over time, that style of writing became known as al-khat 
the writing of Hijaz. But when it, it initially was introduced into the Arabian Peninsula, specifically the Hijaz area, it was known the writing, the writing of the Embari writing with Nun Embar. And then became over time known as Hijaz, the writing of Hijaz. So the Prophet he understands how to scale. He understands how there's going to be this need for language and perhaps the understanding of the Quran being preserved. So he makes a deal with these prisoners of war and a good number of them, alhamdulillah, taught 10 children in Medina how to read and write. As we mentioned earlier, the Prophet ﷺ, in his time, the entire Qur'an is compiled. None of the Muslim historians doubt this at all. But during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, it was not compiled into a book, a mushaf. We know from the narration in, in, in Bukhari and others from Zayd ibn Thabit, that the Prophet and other narrators, that the Prophet commanded people to write it on whatever they were able to write on in those times, like the skin of animals, the bones, and even stones, even on pieces of wood. And we know from narrations, he would tell them, put this surah here and put this surah there and put this verse here and put this verse there. We also know that the Prophet ﷺ taught the people the Qur'an. So, for example, the hadith of Istikhara from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and others that say that the Prophet ﷺ used to teach us Istikhara like he taught us the Qur'an. This hadith is in Bukhari. So the way we were taught istikhara, to memorize it and to utilize it and to act on it, we were taught the Qur'an. That's one evidence. Also, you have the narration of Um Salama, radiallahu ta'ala anha, which is an authentic hadith, who describes how the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi he would read the Qur'an. And she noted that he would take a, a, a short stop between each verse. And specifically, she's referring to Surat Al-Fatiha. Also, the narration of Imam Tirmidhi, which is Hassan, from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, who was sitting with somebody who was reading Surah Tawbah. And that person said, He said, Of course, those of you who know Tajweed, this is Mad Muttasid. It's a connected Mad. You cannot read it with less than, than two long seconds. So Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, he said to him, don't read like that. Don't read like that. He said, what do you mean? He said, that's not the way that the Prophet taught us how to read. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, kana yamuddu maddan. I believe the narration says that he would extend words like fuqara. That's why Imam ibn Jazari, who comes centuries later, and collects all of these different asanid of the qiraat, he said it is not allowed. No 
Imam of the Quran narrated mad muttasil with less than four harakah, two long seconds. Also, the narration that we mentioned uh, a few weeks ago between Sayyidina Umar and Hakim, when 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 the when Umar asked him, "Man aqra'aka? Who who taught you to recite like this?" He said, "Aqra'ani Rasulullah, sallallahu." The Prophet taught me to write this, recite like this. And Umar he said, "But he didn't teach me to recite like that." So what we understand here is that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam taught the companions how to read and recite the Quran. So not only making sure it was written, not only making sure it was organized as he was taught by Sidi Jibreel, alayhi salatu salam, but also the qiraat, and we talked about this before, the, the proper way of reciting the Quran, he taught them. Sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. And there are numerous ahadith from men and women that talk about, we heard the Prophet read Surah Qaf, we heard the Prophet read Surah Pur, we heard... Prophet read this chapter, this chapter, this chapter. Some of them, they said, you know, I sat with him and he read Baqarah up to Ali Imran, up to Nisa. Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Also the authentic hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam, who, from Sayyidina Ali, I believe, and others, that say when revelation would descend upon the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, we would see that he was very tired. It was hard on him. One of the narrations says that the Prophet ﷺ, he would sweat on extremely cold days. His forehead would sweat. And the Prophet ﷺ, after this, he would say, come and take from me. And he would recite those verses to those people around him and teach them. And I, I need you to remember this. This was the most important medium of the preservation and teaching of the Quran. Is the Prophet teaching them, alayhi salatu salam, and then appointing some of them to be imams like uh, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, radiallahu anhu, and others who would recite the Quran in front of others. And this is how you created a Quranic community. Peer review. Amongst the companions of the Prophet who memorized the Quran, Sayyidah Aisha, Sayyidah Hafsa, Sayyidah Fatima, Sayyidah Um Salama, the women closest to the Prophet, of course, they're going to be those who can benefit the most from his teaching. From amongst uh, the, the men, the four khulafa. Also Muawiyah. Uh, Aban ibn Sa'ad. From the people, and more, from the people of Medina, Zayd ibn Thabit, Abu Huraira, Anas ibn Malik, uh, Sa'ad ibn Al-Mundir Amr ibn Sa'ad and Mundir ibn Sa'ad and others Abdullah ibn Mas'ud from Mecca 
These people had memorized the Quran in the lifetime of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So we see that the Prophet Sallallahu's preservation of the Quran means the following. For us now, in an, in an age of literacy, that it was written down completely. Number two, that it was memorized. Just because those people I mentioned memorized the Quran doesn't mean other people didn't memorize a lot of Quran or a good portion of the Quran. And I mentioned some of those people who I believe were the writers of the Prophet ﷺ. Maybe I forgot. Uh, the four Khulafa, uh, Khalid ibn Walid, Amr al-Da'as and his 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 uh, son, Abdullah ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Umar, and others. Then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he passes. وَهُوَ حَيٌّ فِي قَبْرِهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ وَسَحْبِهِ وَسَلَمُ And then comes the time of Sayyidina Umar, uh, Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu. And it's very important to understand something, that in the time of Abu Bakr, around 80 to 85% of the Arabian Peninsula apostates. Like, it, it, it's not a simple e issue. The, the sedition that was happening in the two years of the leadership of Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu, was very difficult. Around 80 to 85% of the people apostated, the tribes, especially from the area of Yamama and Musaylama al-Kadhab, Musaylama the liar. In those battles, in the long narration in Bukhari and others from Zayd ibn Thabit, a, a considerable number of people who were excellent in reciting the Quran and people who had memorized the Quran. People began to continue memorizing and the numbers of people who were excellent in reciting the Quran had grown, but a considerable number of them had died. And we know that Sayyidina Amr ibn Khattab he came to Abu Bakr and he encouraged him to what's called jama' with ayn jama' al-Qur'an to collect the Qur'an. And many of us know the answer of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. He said, How can we do something that the Prophet didn't do it? And we know that Amr continued to encourage him until he finally, he's like, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened up my heart to this idea and I embraced this idea. And here we found, find the foundations of the majority of Sunnis who divide bid'ah into hasana and madhmuma. Because here, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu is acting on the general evidences of the sharia, not any specific evidences of sharia. It's the majority of Sunnis. Some ulama, they actually, you know, they say like there are verses in the Quran that sort of encourage us to preserve the Quran, like, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, He doesn't say, 
So some of them, they say that the word kitab is mentioned like kitaba because it means to write. So what's inferred is that the book has to be written. And then they also say the same thing. Well, uh, you know, that the Quran is called Quran because the Quran as a word comes from two meanings. The majority of scholars of language say that it comes from a word which means a jama to join together. Because when we recite, we join together letters and words. That's why in Surah Al-Baqarah, uh, the menstrual cycle is called Thalathata Quru, three Quru. Because they theorize that the, the embryo uh, or the, the blood was trying to cling, excuse me, to the uterus. That's why, subhanAllah, the word Qarya, a village, because that's where people come together. It's from the same root. Others, of course, they said, no, Quran is from Qira'a to recite. But either way, we find that there is a, an, a, an idea to bring the Quran together from these words. It's called Dalalatul Iman. That's not a discussion, but just you have an idea that there are some ulama, contemporary scholars, who, who, who like said, well, these verses also kind of allude to this process. Jama' al-Qur'an, because it's called Qur'an. And kitabat al-Qur'an, because it's from Dalik al-Kitab, the book, to be written, a book has to be maktub, it has to be written. So Sayyidina uh, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu initially was worried, and then, mashallah, he agreed, and he appointed Zayd ibn Thabit. Zaid ibn Thabit, we talked about him earlier, was one of the people who memorized the Qur'an. But amongst the Sahaba, maybe somebody will ask, why did Abu Bakr choose someone younger than others? Because he was more accomplished in Qur'an. And that's a lesson, again, for our non-prophets and for the work that we're doing in this community, that we have to make sure that all people are, are able to participate regardless of age or gender or ethnicity or language or social economic status. And it's, in, it's, in, it's, it's concerning that the majority of the boards of our nonprofits are simply led by the rich. This is a criticism that can be made that we should think about introspectively as a community because people want their donations. But do you want the donations of someone, the only reason they'll donate to you is if they're a leader? Maybe that's not the best person. And maybe that describes why there's sometimes, politi sometimes political problems in Masajid. Whereas what we should look for are the people who are most qualified. And we should be deliberate in our strategy to make sure that it's as many people as possible from as many different, alhamdulillah, backgrounds as possible because that's who our community is so so abu bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu he does what the prophet did in the authentic narration that young man comes to the prophet وسلم, with his group and the prophet wants to choose a leader and he asked each one of them what have you memorized from the quran and that young man said i memorized baqarah and in baqarah there's a lot of lessons about organizing and working and leadership so the prophet وسلم, said you memorized baqarah he said, yes. And the Prophet Sallallahu said, you're the Amir. When Amr ibn Khattab saw the Adhan in his dream, 
Did the Prophet appoint Umar to be the Mu'addin? No, Bilal and Abdullah ibn Maktoum radiallahu anhum. Why? Because they have the best voice. So the Prophet chooses who's best for the job. And this is what Abu Bakr does, radiallahu ta'ala anhum. When he wants to choose someone who can be in charge of this process of jama al-Qur'an, he chose Zayd ibn Thabit for the following reasons. Number one, he memorized the Qur'an. Number two, he was a writer of the Qur'an. Number three, he was known amongst the Sahaba as the most uh, precise in the ahruf of the Qur'an, the letters and readings of the Qur'an. And he attended the last year of the Prophet's life, peace be upon him, when the Prophet read to Jibreel the Qur'an twice, Zayd ibn Thabit was there. And that is very important because that last reading is going to, if you will, be what the Qur'an is now. Before we talk about Zayd's work, because there are a few narrations that some of the people who want to engage polemically Islam, which is fine. But sometimes the way they engage it, it, it is showing that they're lacking certain understandings. When we use the word jama al-Qur'an, compilation of Qur'an, what does that mean? If you think about everything I said previously, it's in that word. The first is Tadween al-Qur'an, Kitabat al-Qur'an, that the Qur'an is written. This happened in the time of the Prophet although not in one, one text. Number two, the preservation of how to recite the Qur'an, how to recite it correctly. Number three, the memorization of the Qur'an. Hif al-Qur'an. And number four, and this is a different topic, is how to act on the Qur'an. And how to act on the Qur'an means three things. Number one, the Prophet Wasallam's actions. Number two, the actions of the early Muslims when they agreed on the meanings of the Qur'an. And number three, how the early Muslims taught us to differ over meanings of the Qur'an. That's very important. SubhanAllah. So when we say jam al-Qur'an, number one, we mean kitabat al-Qur'an. The Prophet wasallam, as we mentioned, he commanded people to write the Qur'an and even where to place Chapters and verses, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Number two, the proper tilawa of Qur'an. We find the Sahaba, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions them in Surah Al-Baqarah, yatluna kitab Allahi haqqa tilawati. They recite it correctly, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And also, for example, the Prophet ﷺ encouraging people to take the tilawah from Abdullah ibn 
Mas'ud, from Ubay ibn Ka'ab, from Zayd ibn Thabit, and others, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, as a preservation of the tilawa. So, kitabah, tilawa, writing, recitation. The third is through the memorization of the Qur'an. We mentioned those companions that had memorized the Qur'an from the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and that the Prophet Sallallahu in the Qur'an, Allah says, Fi suduri in the chest of people. And then fourth, al-amal, how to act on the Qur'an, and that's a different discussion. So when we say jam al-Qur'an, it means those things. Kitaba, tilawa, hif, al-amal. So when Zayd ibn Thabit begins this process, he says something remarkable. Initially, he doesn't like the idea. He says this is not something that the prophet did, but then also he says Abu Bakr finally uh, was able to show me that this was the correct thing to be done. And he agreed. And here we see the maturity of the Sahaba, how they could differ and change their opinions and grow and adapt and listen and engage. He says, Wallahi, if somebody asked me to carry a mountain, it would be easier. Then that responsibility that Abu Bakr gave to that young person, Allahu Akbar, Zayd ibn Thabit. Zayd ibn Thabit, in an authentic narration from Imam Abu Dawood, from Yahya ibn Abdurrahman ibn Hatib, this narration. From Yahya ibn Abdurrahman ibn Hatib. Said that Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab, radiallahu anhu, he would come to the city of Medina and he would say, any of you who have something written of the Qur'an in front of the Prophet وسلم, bring it. We learn also from this narration that Zayd ibn Thabit, he didn't act on his own. He was just like the supervisor. But there were other people involved. Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan, uh, Ubay ibn Ka'b, and others, Sayyidah Hafsa, Sayyidah Aisha, others. And Zayd ibn Thabit, we understand from this narration in Abu Dawood, as well as I believe in Bukhari, that he had a number of conditions. The first condition is that it was memorized. Like people who memorized the Quran are the ones that are involved. Number two, that if it was written, it had to be witnessed by people that it was written in front of the Messenger of Allah. That at a minimum, two people had to witness that that individual had written that part of the Quran in front of Sayyid al-Aqwan, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So memorized and written, but not written alone written in front of others. And that's where people get confused about the narration in Bukhari of Abi uh, uh, Khuzayma. 
when Zayd ibn Thabit, in talking about this process of compiling the Quran, he he says that I I found everything except the last verse of Surah Tawbah. I found that with Abi Khuzayma. Some people, because of insecurities or fear or being, you know, perhaps impacted by, an, uh, you know, to love Muslims and love Islam and love our scholarly tradition is an act of revolt, an act of divine revolt in front of the tidal wave of the Eurocentricism that we see in the academy, as well as permeating the world around us. As a Sahawi and others mentioned, that one of the conditions of Zayd was that it had to be what he had memorized. But look at look at the 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 the, 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 diqqah, the precision of Zayd ibn Thabit, who says, "I'm not just going to rely on what I memorized from the Prophet. I've got to find it memorized by others." And then it has to be written, and that what was written has to be witnessed by more than two people. So when he goes to Abi Khuzayma, it's not because Zayd doesn't know the verse. That's not, that's not what he means. That's not what the narration means. The narration doesn't mean he didn't know the verse, and no one else knew the verse except Abi Khuzayma. No, it was memorized. The people who had memorized the Quran knew it, but Abi Khuzayma was the one who wrote it. He had it written down. And you'll remember we said two conditions, memorized, written. So we hear actually the opposite we understand from this narration. The, the precision of Zayd ibn Thabit and others like Sayyidina Umar al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. And then the fact that other people knew Abi Khuzayma had written it it wasn't a big secret and informed Zayd ibn Thabit and Umar and others that this is the person who wrote this. This is a person who has it written down, meaning it wasn't a big secret. It was known. But that hadith, even sometimes Muslims ask me questions about it, which I understand. It gets lost in translation and people want to strengthen their iman and know how to defend the Quran. May Allah bless them. But the narration of Abi Khuzayma by no means implies that he had a portion of Qur'an that no one else had. No, he had written down what no one else had written down. Because as we said earlier, you know, writing wasn't the main means of preserving the Qur'an. It was hif. So I hope that clarifies that narration. The Sayyidina Zayd ibn Muthabit radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he compiles the Qur'an. Uh, in coordination with people like Uthman ibn Affan, Sayyidina Umar, Sayyidina Hafsa, Sayyidina Aisha, Sayyidina Fatima, Sayyidina Muawiyah radiallahu anhum, and the Mus'haf is compiled. Jam al-Mus'haf, meaning written, read, memorized, acted on. Then, of course, you know, uh, it stays with Sayyidina Abu Bakr, then it goes to Sayyidina Umar al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, and then comes the reign of Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and next time we'll pick up there, inshallah, and talk about the work that happened during the time of Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan.
as well as some of the people that we just talked about. And then we're going to talk about the development of the Arabic script, because there are some people out there who, you know, perhaps for whatever reason, uh, say some things about the Kufic script in particular and the role of people like Qutb ibn al-Muharrara and others in developing the Kufic script and its relationship to the Hijazi script. And then what happens in the Abbasi time with Muhammad ibn Muqla and others who were responsible for the Arabic script that we have in front of us today. Uh, we'll talk about that next time. But what do we talk about today? We talked about the Prophet وسلم, talking about that his community, the people around him were illiterate. We talked about the people around the Prophet وسلم, who had literacy. We talked about the, the cause or the people, the main players, not the only, but these are the main players who contributed to the literacy of people in the Hijaz. We mentioned Harb ibn uh, Umayyah and this difference about who taught him or perhaps both of them, which seems quite plausible, taught him. We talked about the Battle of Badr and how this has this really incredible impact. And then we talked about the, the, the way of preservation of the Quran in the time of the Prophet And then we talked about the time of Abu Bakr anhu, what happens and how they employ Zayd ibn Thabit and why. And then we talked briefly Again, what I'm telling you now could be taught like probably in a semester course. So I'm just kind of giving you the, the surface of all of this. And I hope, encourage you to do your own constructive research. Zayd ibn Thabit, of course, follows this really, really kind of precise way with the help of others. We mentioned the narration of Imam Abu Dawud, of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab, radiallahu anhu, the narration of Abdurrahman, Yahya ibn Abdurrahman ibn Hatib, Hatib, upon the bat, Hatib, the bat from Imam Abu Dawud, alhamdulillah, and then this process of Zaid. And then we mentioned one example, there are numerous examples that we can go through in the future of a narration found in Bukhari that people, if they don't understand what Jab Quran means, and if they don't know the process that Zaid employed, and they read that, especially with the English translation, they're gonna get confused. Uh, Abi Khuzayma, he had his own version of the Quran, what? But we said what it meant was he was the one who had he had it written down. But the others had it memorized. And that's why Imam al-Sakhawi, he says, what that means is that he was the one who had it written down and more than two people witnessed it being written in front of the Prophet while the others had it memorized. Barakallahu feekum. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increase you in khair. May Allah SWT make uh, our efforts, inshallah, for his sake. We ask Allah SWT, you aid Nabi Nasrihi, inshallah. If there are any questions or comments, we're happy to take uh, them now. Barakallahu Now, specifically, this is a great question. Someone's asking, if the Arabic script developed temporarily so close to the life of the Prophet Muhammad SAW, then how does the explain the Arabic inscriptions we find on boulders that date back to over 2000 years? From what I understand, those inscriptions are Nebatean or Amoric or Assyric, but not necessarily the Arabic that we understand now. That's my, that's what I know. Uh, and this is mentioned by even contemporary Arabists. So that's what I know of that research, alhamdulillah. And also there may be some discussions about how how uh, uh, that Arabic was. Was it, was it formalized yet? Had it been developed into a formalized system of writing? Or was it just 
things here and there. So that's the other discussion. There was a mention of istikhara. Was this before writing down or compiling the Quran? No, what I mentioned is that the, that the companions of the Prophet in their narration, like the narration of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, who says that the Prophet taught us istikhara like he taught us the Quran. So what we understood is he taught them istikhara. Everyone learned how to say istikhara, not write down istikhara. Right? Like he taught them how to memorize and say the Quran. We have to reposition our understanding that at that time, people didn't rely on reading. Like now, if we went to people who lived even 25 years ago, they relied on landlines. No, nobody relies on landlines. Landlines. So it's a very different crutch that society used, and the crutch at that time was memory. I experienced this with my teachers. I was taught to memorize. Uh, initially. And, and then when I went to Egypt, you know, people uh, began to use books more. But my initial teacher, I remember one time I sold my college textbook after the semester. And he was like, that's crazy. Why would you sell a book? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, dude, that's a book. Like his understanding of like the value of a book was very different than my own because it was something rare to him. So they memorized and learned to say listihara, showing they also memorized and learned to recite the Quran. And that, the point here is that the Prophet ﷺ, he emphasized uh, the memorization of the Quran. What about the classical poems that predated the Prophet ﷺ? Did they speak in the same Arabic as Prophet Muhammad and not Nabatina or Sirik? But that's, I think someone here is confused. You're asking about the writing of the, the Arabic script. The Arabic that, of course, preceded the Prophet some there are some dialectical differences, but it's the same Arabic. These are two different subjects. But those poems, those poets didn't write down their poetry. Imbro Qais, he couldn't write. Antara, he couldn't write. Zuhair, he couldn't write. Uh, they, they were unable to write. And I actually experienced this, and I'm not an Arab. Uh, one of my teachers, almost everything he said was in poetry. And I still have it, like, memorized in my mind. I don't know how, something about the language, mashallah. I remember one time my children came to visit him and he made a poem about my children. I have never written down that in my life. But when I heard it, the moment I heard it, subhanAllah, I was able to memorize it. So those pre mu'alaqat al-sab'i which we learned like imruqais qifa nabka min dhikri habibin wa manziri bisiqti al-liwa bayna al-dukhuri fa hawmari even me i had to learn that from my teacher by listening i didn't write down imruqais's mu'alaqa so no those are two different two different issues the writing of the arabic language and the uniformity of the arabic language that comes in the anbar which all arabists agree on there's no difference on this uh and then the uh, memorization and preservation of poetry through the oral tradition. Those are two very different things, but that's a really great question, mashallah. Thank you for asking, Barakalofiq. Really great question, mashallah. I love these questions. It's unfortunate that people have to ask them in an anonymous way. I hope you feel comfortable. You can ask any question, alhamdulillah. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not someone who, you know, someone differs with me, I'm not gonna get upset, mashallah. Are there any other questions? If not, Jazakumullah khairan. I hope that this uh, was of some benefit to people interested in this topic, especially sort of with the, the issues that we find um, uh, going around uh, in today's times. 
but I think it's important that we, we rely on Muslim scholarship and our Muslim historical theological narrative, uh, especially when we're talking about the, actually the, 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 the research of those scholars is, was more uh, rigorous than say others. And in fact, we find the others sometimes is very sloppy. And I gave the example of the Haditha Abi Khuzayma earlier. Uh, looks like there's no other questions. Barakallahu fikum. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increase you. And always a pleasure to spend uh, time with you. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. If you would like to listen to more, please donate to www.icnyu.org donate. For more of our virtual programs, go to www.icnyu.org classes. If you have any questions, email us at info at icnyu.org.